Brothers and sisters, I'm here to preach the old, old gospel. It is ever new. Let's bow before the Lord, and then we will read our passage. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, with humility and reverence, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who alone can regenerate sinners, call out of darkness into light, save and renew, will take the word inspired, profitable, unerring, and apply it to hearts. Those who may even be in a conference such as this that are lost and do not know Christ. And we pray that the saints will be upbuilt in the most holy faith as we simply review this well-known passage and remember something of the greatness of the grace of God in justifying sinners. So, Heavenly Father, we ask that Christ Jesus will be exalted, lifted up, held high, and that our hearts would be moved by the truth and reality of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please open your copy of God's Word to the third chapter of the book of Romans. And I would like to begin reading at verse 19, Romans chapter 3, beginning with verse 19, all the way to the end of the chapter. And please keep your Bibles open to follow along as the passage is exposited. Romans 3, beginning with verse 19. This is the word of God. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now... The righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and uncircumcision through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. 
the word of the Lord. People of God, perhaps no theologian has better said what justification is all about than William Cunningham, one great Scottish theologian, who said that justification is about the imputation of the righteousness that God's righteousness required him to require. That remark takes us right into the very courtroom of the righteous one, posing the question, the ancient question, the question that must face us all, how can a man be right with God? If it requires a righteousness that is God's own righteousness, that corresponds to his own attribute of righteousness, how can I, the sinner, be justified in his court of law? For this righteousness contemplated is completely objective and utterly forensic, a matter of the prisoner before the judge intensifying the legal question, how shall a man be right with God? But before we can answer that question, we must comment on the background of the legal case that was against us. And so we see first, man under God's wrath. Romans chapters 1 through 3, up into verse 21, the apostle argues that Gentile and Jew alike are totally depraved sinners under the wrath of God. And that argument concludes with verses 19 and 20. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. The entire world is guilty before God. And so this third chapter in particular contemplates original sin, the corruption of our nature that is actually manifested in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds so that the entire world is under the condemning wrath of God and is culpable. The law demands of sinners perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience, and none of us can meet that standard. That's the point of verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, not the way of justification, but the knowledge applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit that we are sinners in need of justification. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing that you and I can do to bring ourselves into a savable state or standing. And therefore, every mouth is stopped, and the image is awful. Standing before the judge when asked about the evidence of righteousness in our lives, in his court of law, we have no answer but silence. We are doomed. We are condemned under the just law of God. 
Perhaps some of you know of Robert Haldane, who wrote that wonderful commentary on Romans that is still so valuable today. And in the mid-19th century, he met with students who were a part of the, the seminary that trained the ministers for Geneva and environs. He actually came, we would say, by chance, that is to say, in the providence of God upon a student on a park bench, discussed with him what he was studying, learned that those students had no knowledge of the Bible, knew nothing of the cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, knew nothing of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And so he invited them into his chambers, and he set out a long table. And he placed around the table various copies of the Bible in various languages, and they began to study together the book of Romans, from which came ultimately his wonderful commentary. One of those Unitarian students who knew nothing of the Bible and nothing of the great doctrine of salvation by grace that was around that table was Merle Dobinia, who became one of the great church historians after his conversion to Jesus Christ to whom the Bible at this point was completely a closed book. And when Haldane unpacked the theme of corruption in the human heart from the first three chapters of the book of Romans, Dobinia said to Haldane, Now I see that doctrine in the Bible. Yes, Haldane said to Dobinia, but do you see it in your heart? And Dobinia responded, That was but a simple question, but it came home to my conscience. Before going on any further in this message, I want to ask, has this truth and reality come home to your heart, to your conscience? That we are ruined by sin, totally unable to recover ourselves. Does your conscience know this truth of total depravity and of our guilt before God? Does your heart, does your conscience say amen to the truth that by nature, apart from Christ, God owes us nothing but his wrath and condemnation? Do you understand that you stand before God if you are a lost sinner who does not know Christ today under the condemning wrath of God? And this makes the answer to the question, how shall a man be accepted by God? How shall a sinner be just in God's court of law? How shall a man be justified? This makes that that issue, that question, that doctrine of justification, not only, as Martin Luther said, the standing and falling doctrine of the church, but as Charles Simeon once said, Justification by grace through faith is the standing or falling doctrine of the soul. What is the answer for us who drink in iniquity like water and eat eat it like bread? There is no hope for you at Sinai. There is only hope for us at Calvary. Which leads us to the second thing we see in this text. This righteousness that we need, God provided the righteousness that we in our sin could not. And so we read in this 21st verse, but now, just as we saw from Dr. Neely's text this morning 
in verse 4 of Ephesians 2, but God. We read in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And so we are told in this verse immediately that only he could provide the righteousness for a right standing in his own court of justice. So that verse 21 is the dramatic and joyful, truly astounding turning point to the discussion of man's deep and real need. Law manifests sin, but it cannot save. It can only condemn. We cannot produce this righteousness. And the marvel of this provision of a righteous standing for a sinner is that the inflexibility of the law could not be in any way set aside or relaxed. Had that been the case, then this would have been to have changed God's own perfections into imperfections. God could not, I say it reverently, and though I know that in this I differ from some very well-known and well-attested theologians, God could not, I say it reverently, he could not have, by divine fiat, simply have said to sinners, I pardon you, I forgive you, I justify you. He could not have done this by divine fiat, the standard of the inflexible law must be wholly met or we remain condemned under its standard, just and holy standard forever. And this God did in Christ. Do not dilute this. Do not dilute it in the least. There can be no contribution from our side whatsoever. Our justification is the provision of sovereign free grace through the work of the incarnate Son of God. What then has God provided for us needy sinners that we might be able to stand before him in acceptance? The answer is the righteousness of God witnessed to by the law and the prophets, we are told in this passage, verse 21. As we saw last night from Leviticus 16, this righteousness, according to verse 22, is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justifying righteousness is the provision of the God of sovereign grace. And that is why this righteous standing is received by faith alone. Why by faith alone? Because faith is God's gift of grace. Faith contributes nothing. It only receives. Christ alone is the object of faith. And faith must look away from self unto Christ. Faith rests in Christ Faith relies on Christ. Faith trusts in Christ. And therefore, faith will no longer allow us to submit to the burden of condemnation once we have seen the object of our faith, Christ Jesus our Lord. But now it sees, he sees the sinner clothed in the perfect record of Christ's imputed righteousness. 
And so if someone is even at a conference like this and you are lost and in your conscience you know that you are a sinner and the Spirit of God is showing you that under the law of God you cannot be redeemed and you cannot be saved by any work of your own, how may you receive this right standing before this holy God in his court of law? The answer is by receiving Christ by faith with no work of your own. Which leads us thirdly to see in the text, how was justifying righteousness provided? If our great need is this righteousness in the court of law, how was it provided? We read in the first part of verse 24, the answer being justified freely by his grace. God's saving kindness despite our ill-deservedness, freely by his grace. And when the Apostle Paul says freely, not only does he mean no work of your own, nothing that you can perform, but he wants you to understand that there is no condition that you must meet before coming to him. There is no condition whatsoever. Christ has met all conditions. And the language is designed to exclude any cause within us, any cause but the grace of God. And this is why the apostle later says in the 11th chapter of Romans, if it is by grace, then no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. Though by grace to us, however, it was of infinite cost to the Son of God, who in that great eternal covenant with the Father agreed that he would come into this world and that he would bear the wrath of God and take upon himself the iniquity of his people imputed to him in order that sinners like you and me might have a salvation that is full and that is free and that is without conditions. This is what he did. This was the plan of God in eternity past, long ere the sun began its days or moon shot forth her silver rays. Salvation scheme was fixed, was done in covenant by the three in one. The Father spake, the Son replied, the Spirit with them both complied. Grace moved the cause for saving man, and wisdom drew the noble plan. And so he says in verse 24, it is by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, the context for this provision of righteousness for the ungodly was that of sacrifice and substitution. Fundamentally, redemption means deliverance from the slavery of sin, being set free from an old dominion and master and brought into a new dominion and under a new master by means of a ransom price. And that ransom price, we will read in a few moments in verse 25, was the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ took the sinner's sin in the sinner's place, and he bore for us the curse of the broken law, and there on Calvary satisfied the laws of demand, the law's demands, paying in full the penalty, the full penalty for the sins of his people. Where there is guilt, there must be punishment. There must be punishment of our guilt by the just God. 
And only Christ, Christ alone, could be surety to satisfy the demands of the broken law of God. So how was this provided? By grace alone, in the context of redemption, by means of blood. And this means, fourthly, the righteousness provided is consistent with God's own righteous character. Now here Paul goes deeply into answering the question, what happened when Jesus died at Calvary? And we are not left in the dark. The preceding portion of Romans was about God's wrath. Here is God's own answer to the problem of God's wrath, both as a problem to us sinners, but again, to speak reverently, as a problem that only God could solve. Both for us sinners who have no means of escape of our own, and Godward, how God can justify sinners and remain just in the process. And so the old theologians were certainly right when, if I just may paraphrase the thought, the principle that ruined sinners is the principle that must save sinners. And that principle is divine, inflexible justice. Divine, inflexible justice must be met if we are to be just in God's court of law. And so the answer of how God can justify sinners while himself remaining the just God that he is, is found in verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. The answer in verse 25 How can God be just and the justifier of the sinner? How can the holy and just God remain just and also accept me, the sinner, who has broken his law, who is under condemnation and wrath? How can I be just before such a God? How can he remain just? The answer is propitiation by blood. Now, propitiation means the satisfaction of of wrath. John Owen, in his great commentary on Hebrews, and I have it marked in my copy, says that there are four essential elements of propitiation. The first is an offense to be taken away. The second is a person offended who needs to be pacified. The third is an offending person, a person guilty of the offense. The fourth, a sacrifice or some other means for making atonement for the offense. And these elements are even found in in ancient Greek literature and in pagan literature, a recognition that that there must be some kind of pacification, some kind of, of remission of sin, some sort of propitiation. But it's only in the Holy Scriptures and here in this passage in particular we have the answer to the question as to how God himself, the true and living, the holy God, can be just and justify us. Because the offense was our sin. 
the person offended was God. The offending person was me, the sinner. And the means of making atonement, in this case, the only means for making atonement, the only means of pacifying the wrath of God, satisfying his justice, the only way of justification is the sacrifice of the Son of God in my place. In my place condemned he stood, sealed by pardon in his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior! That's what Paul the Apostle is telling us here, teaching us here. And here is the glory of the cross. When we stand before a human judge, that judge has a standard outside of himself that he is called upon to withhold, to uphold. But God himself as standard, revealed to us as the standard of his law over us, the righteous God, the righteous judge himself, imagine it, the righteous judge, so constituted reality that he can, in history, substitute himself in the person of his son to die for sinners and to appease wrath. What a wonderful reality is the gospel. What wondrous love is this? What beautiful divine system of redemption and salvation that the judge submitted himself to be judged. And so, people of God, just think that on that great day of Assize, when all humanity stands before the judge, and we, his people, saved by grace, stand before the judge, on that day of judgment, we will stand before the judge with nail-scarred hands. Those hands, those wounds, speaking peace to us, even in that awe-filled day. But those who have faith in Christ have peace with God now. And so in verses 25 and 26, verses that have often confused even commentators, when the apostle says, for remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus, Paul does not mean here that God never punished sins before the historical event of the cross or that he forgave sinners without contemplating the cross but it means that the full penalty was postponed and believing sinners stood before God justified in anticipation of the almighty grace of the cross. But now the cross has happened in time, in space, in history. The cross has taken place, clearly manifesting the justice of the one who himself put forward or set forth his Son in almighty love and grace, according to verse 25, to be our propitiation through faith in his blood. He was set forth by God as propitiation on the cross, or as Paul put it in the third chapter of Galatians, he was set forth publicly placarded 
before our eyes as that great substitute for sinners. And therefore, God's justice is completely and utterly vindicated. The problem of how God can provide for hell-deserving sinners like me, a righteousness that is consistent with his own righteous character, is solved in the depths of the transaction that took place on the cross. When my guilt was imputed to Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness was woven in the loom of the cross that it might be imputed to me having believed on Christ Jesus. The great exchange, this is the great transaction to which the Apostle Paul points here and throughout the rest of the book. James Henley Thorne will put it this way, the doctrine of substitution is unquestionably an ultimate principle in the moral government of God. God cannot absolutely pardon, by that he means what I said a moment ago. He could not simply by divine fiat forgive. Something must take place. He cannot absolutely pardon. He can only transfer the punishment. He cannot set aside the sanction of his law, but can only give it a different direction. Who then can can save, can be saved from going down into the pit? It was reserved for the wisdom of the eternal to answer that solemn question. So you see, God in infinite wisdom finds in his Son the only one who can satisfy the justice of God. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. And as Thornwell goes on himself to say, in the scheme of redemption, God visits the transgressions of sinners in the person of his Son. The law is executed to its utmost rigors, and God is just perfectly and gloriously just in justifying those who believe. Their sins, hear this, their sins, the sins of believers, those for whom he died, their sins have been as truly punished as if they had been consigned to the darkness of hell. And so, as the old theologians used to say, in this the law is magnified, Jehovah is glorified, and the sinner is justified. Now, some additional depth dimension is seen in this passage by remembering what was preached about the Day of Atonement. By viewing the connection between verse 25 and Leviticus 16. It seems that Paul has before him the topology of that passage when the high priest, once per year took the blood of sacrifice into the most holy place and sprinkled it on the propitiatory, on the mercy seat. The cherubim atop, the law underneath, and God looking down. And now God is not hidden behind a cloud of incense. His love is plainly manifest in the cross, as is the righteousness that God's righteousness required him to require in order that believing sinners might 
be justified. The claims of justice then were not disregarded. The claims of justice could never have been disregarded. The claims of justice had to be met by the only one who could shed his blood and pay the price of sin. And now, that being the case, believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how long will you, believer, be accepted by God? The answer to that question is as long as Christ endures. As Smeaton put it, Christ is our meritorious redemption, our infinite ransom in the objective sense that he will continue to be so while his living person endures. There the judge beholds the church's redemption. And every time he looks on the person of Christ, he sees our eternal ransom. You are just before God, believer, as long as the eternal ransom endures, which is forever. So that rightly indeed we may sing, if thou hast my discharge procured and fully in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Which if those lines are new to you, those great grand lines, if they are new to you, simply means if Christ has redeemed you through his shed blood, and as your propitiatory sacrifice satisfied the divine justice that went out against you in condemnation, if you have trusted in that propitiatory sacrifice, God cannot again demand, cannot again demand, your condemnation, because your surety, the one who bore your legal obligations, paid in full your debts once for all and forever. This this right relating to God at the cost of blood, as I was thinking through this text, brought to mind one of my favorite passages in Boner's book on Leviticus. Listen to what he says. He's speaking of that passage in Leviticus 17, 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. And Boner said this, the grand reason for this jealousy in regard to the use of blood is the blood is the life. When poured out, it shows atonement for it expresses the life taken, thou shalt die. To you, sinner, what should be more tremendous than the sign of your own life taken? And to your God, O sinner, nothing is more solemnly glorious than the blood of his own Son. Earth and heaven stand still when the blood is poured out. By the life is the atonement made." When the spear reached the heart of Jesus, the blood was poured out from the very seat of life. The heart and the pericardium were both pierced, and therefore the blood that then gushed forth with the liquid fluid of the pericardium 
was blood from the warm seat of vitality. And as such was the type, so the reality. Jesus did then pour forth his whole soul, affections, feelings, faculties, and every power of his soul, all were laid down in suffering obedience to his Father. The heat of wrath melted all, and all thus melted flowed forth in that wondrous stream. The law took its penalty out from the very source of life. But why life taken? Why death required? Because the essence of sin is an attack on God's holy throne and his very existence. It is therefore repelled by God crushing the sinner's life. And Jesus bore even this for men. You have slain the prince of life. This he did for our sins, people of God. So that though we would never in any way diminish the physical sufferings of the Savior, the great and grand thing to contemplate is that bearing the wrath of God in his own holy body and soul as your substitute was the crushing weight under which he was led to cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I remember a line in McShane in which he says, I feel like a little child in contemplating these matters. I feel like a little child standing beside some deep ravine and throwing in the stones and listening and unable to hear as it hits the bottom. Or like some sailor casting his leads at sea, but unable to find the ocean bottom. And then he said, the ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. So that his soul's suffering was the soul of his suffering. This is so important and so absolutely essential and so indispensable. And I have been concerned about a drift that I have seen for a number of years when the doctrine of atonement sometimes is taught in classes of certain seminaries, not here and not at Westminster either. But there are theories of the atonement There is the moral influence view of the atonement. There is the governmental view of the atonement. There is the so-called Christus Victor view of atonement. And the way these are being taught now is that these are theories of the atonement and that along with in some way perhaps the idea of substitutionary atonement, all of these things are necessary for us to come up with, to systematize a right and proper view of the atonement. 
And that is simply not the case. Because the moral influence view of the, of the atonement and the governmental view of the atonement and the Christus Victor view of the atonement are not theories of the atonement at all. Because any view of atonement that excludes at its center the propitiatory sacrifice and the necessity of, of the shed blood of Christ is not a true view of the atonement. And so my students would sometimes say to me, they would say, well, there are truths in each of these views. Yes, I would say there are truths in them, but they are not true views of the atonement. The true view of the atonement is substitutionary atonement through the shed blood of Jesus who propitiated the wrath of God, and through that propitiation, our sins are expiated for those who believe. Any view of the atonement that is not, first of all, God-centered and understands something of the wrath of God and its need to be propitiated, that is man-centered, well, there may be truths in these other views of the atonement, but let me remind you that old-fashioned rat poison is 99% cornmeal. It's the 1% arsenic that kills the rat. And that can happen to the church if we do not guard these precious truths that are fundamental and at the forefront of the teaching of the Apostle Paul and of the New Testament. Well, there's a fifth thing we see. The fifth thing is glory to God. And we read in verse 27, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Verse 27 is the fourth time in this passage that justification is said to be by faith. And Paul will mention it four additional times in verses 28 through 31. Faith adds nothing. It has no creative ability of its own. It simply receives and it depends. And therefore, faith upholds the truth of grace. We contribute no work of our own. Rather, we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Look at verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. And therefore, Martin Luther's translation of this verse, 28, alone by faith, so scoffed at by Rome, is upheld by the context. Both depraved and helpless Jews and Gentiles must also be justified, verses 29 and 30 tell us, by faith. By faith in the crucified one. The law is upheld as Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers and received by faith alone. And the wondrous thing about this doctrine of atonement that is preached by faithful Reformed ministers is, as was said last night by Dr. Barrett, it works. That this propitiation 
actually is the basis for, for our understanding of the particular nature of the atonement. So here you are in, in, imprisoned, and someone comes to you and says, why don't you get out of your prison? Well, I can't get out of my prison. As a matter of fact, I may not want to get out of my prison. And then he says, well, why don't you pay the ransom to get out? Pay the debt to get out. Well, I have nothing with which to pay the debt. And so he may say, well, why don't you break out of your prison? I'm completely bound in this prison. I cannot get out of this prison. But God sent his own son, and he accomplished redemption. His cross becomes the battering ram that breaks down the prison walls. The huge scissors, so to speak, if I may say so reverently, that cuts through the chains. And this Redeemer, this surety, brings us out of our prison. So that propitiation must result in expiation. And the only way that you can be right with God is by faith in Jesus Christ, and that faith is God's gift. And so lost person here today, unable to extricate yourself from your bondage, There is only one anchor of hope. May I tell you something of my own experience, though the Bible is authoritative and not my experience. When I was 13 years old, God began to work within my heart, showing me that I was a desperate, needy sinner. And I had read through the book of Revelation, wondering what it all was about. Where can I find a a salvation as I began to understand that I had broken the law of God. And I came to the 14th chapter of the Apocalypse, and there I read a blood up to the horse's bridles. And then I began to dream, not extra-biblical revelation, God using his own word to convict my conscience, showing me that I was a sinner. I began to dream of that blood to the horse's bridle. It was that blood of the sinner demanded by the breach of God's law referenced in the 14th chapter that God used to drive me to the blood that redeems, saves, and propitiated the wrath of God. And so all of our boasting must be in the cross. All of our boasting must be in the merit of Jesus Christ. Another disturbing trend, I think, is how rarely do I hear ministers in pulpits today use the expression, the merit of Christ. But I rarely hear it any longer. It is only the merit of Jesus Christ that can save you from your sins. And if we do not understand that, we still have some kind of self-righteousness within our hearts upon which we will boast. But all boasting, according to Paul the Apostle, is in the cross. That's what he's saying here. I remember Haldane writing somewhere, it is the purpose of God to stain the pride of human glory. And this he does in the cross. 
And so our boasting, again, verse 27, where is boasting then? Our boasting, he says, is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Our boasting is completely shut out. And so this passage is a grand and expansive proof of our call to boast in the cross of Jesus Christ alone. God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of Jesus Christ, my Lord, by whom the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Well, no wonder then. Olshausen, one of the old commentators on the book of Romans, said of this passage that we have attempted to look at in these brief minutes, that this passage is the Acropolis of the Christian faith. He's saying, look at the sheer magnificence of it, the sheer magnitude of God's plan, the beauty, the symmetry, the wonder, the power, the effectualness of what Jesus Christ did for us sinners on the cross. And if Paul had dealt with salvation comprehensively in Romans, but had only limited himself, rather than have done this comprehensively, had he only limited himself to a discussion of the propitiatory work of Christ and our justification by grace through faith alone, if he had limited himself only to that, he still might have concluded the discussion with the words at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For of him, through him, and to him are all things to whom be the glory. People of God, you are saved completely, utterly, by God's provision through Jesus Christ. Boast in him, boast in that, boast that before the world, boast that in your pulpits, you preachers, boast that in the church. Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my all, demands your heart, your life, your all. Amen and amen.